So we need to understand labor, our own labor and the labor of others as a finite resource because we treat it as an infinite resource where we're like, you know what? We don't have enough money, but we can just keep throwing labor at it and, uh, you know, not worry about the consequences of that. And that practice is one that needs to stop in order to foster sustainability. Welcome to Artist as Leader, where we explore the intersection of creativity and leadership. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership. And I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we bring you Piercarlo's interview with dancers and choreographers Muriel Elysion and Tommy Noonan. So Piercarlo, can you tell us a little bit about both of them? Yeah, um, they are partners in many ways in life, art, and business. Uh, they met while working in Europe. Muriel is French, as like you couldn't tell by her name. Although I guess she could be Quebecois, but no, she's French. And um, <laughs> Tommy is American, and he's from North Carolina. In fact, oh. both have lengthy resumes that list an impressive array of dance, choreography, and teaching projects with major institutions and companies all over the world, Mexico, Argentina, Australia, Slovakia. So it might therefore be surprising at first glance that in 2014, they chose a small, unincorporated village of Saxpaha, North Carolina. You've been there, right? I have. Very small, little cozy village in central North Carolina. Very sweet. Uh, formerly a, a, a mill town, no longer. Um, in 2010, the population was 1,418, maybe it's 1,800 now, who knows, to create, <laughs> and that's where they created their latest artistic venture, Culture Mill, a performing arts laboratory. But as I think this conversation will make clear, Saxpaha was a perfect place in which they could bring their vision to life. They wanted to make an organization whose art making was woven inextricably into the fabric of its geographic home. In their first full year of operation, for instance, Culture Mill launched Trust the Bus, an experience in which audiences boarded a 44-seat Bluebird biodiesel school bus <laughs> and were then driven to an assortment of interdisciplinary performances throughout rural Alamance County. Awesome. I wish I lived here at that time. I would have really loved it. Since then, Culture Mill has welcomed many noted international artists to Saxbaha. For lengthy residencies, they've offered countless free or low-cost workshops and arts events to the community, and they've become a regular fixture at the prestigious American Dance Festival in Durham, North Carolina, which also commissioned one of their latest pieces, They Are All. They Are All is a dance piece that Muriel and Tommy created in collaboration with people living with Parkinson's disease, many of whom performed in its world premiere in 2019. Muriel and Tommy spoke with me from Culture Mill Studio, not far from their home in Saxbaha. And they spoke with me several weeks into the COVID-19 lockdown. One thing I should mention is that in this interview, I reference an op-ed that Tommy wrote for Indie Week, which is the uh, alternative weekly for our area in North Carolina. And I encourage our listeners to read it, and you'll find a link for it in our show notes. So go check it out. I started the interview by asking them to describe how their training and practice as dancers and choreographers with international careers led them to create an arts lab in Saxpaha. Aha. <laughs> I feel like there's many there's there are many layered answers to that question. Oh, uh, I bet. They are. So, um how do we land it here and how the um, 
Yeah, there are many layers and I will try to to say some of them and then I'm sure Tommy will have another version of that because most likely all everything that we do is a version of our two approaches, of course, and our combined approaches. The fact that we landed here came with a really big need after being for many years um, working in Europe in different countries as choreographer and dancers in fixed company, in city theaters, and also as freelancers to have our work be uh, relevant to the place where we were living. It was really rewarding to be in different places, but we could not see the impact that we were having with the work we were doing, really, because you do a, a guest project, you do a project, and then you go somewhere else. So we wanted to, to find such a place. It was not easy to find the place in the first place, um, because I'm from France, uh, Tommy is from here, and then visiting here, we noticed that there were like the possibility to build an organization from the ground using all the tools that we have developed as choreographer and dancers and artists along the year to build something really unique in a place where it was not existing. And Saxpo seems that it was a place. Uh, uh, Tommy grew up in the area, and we were visiting here, and it looked like Saxpo could be such a place. Yeah, and um, if I just could add to that, um, too, I like, you know, there were, there was, there's a wonderful um, contemporary theater company in England called Forced Entertainment, and they're from Sheffield. And uh, there was once I was attending a workshop with them, and they were talking about how they wanted their work to really be imbued with a sense of place. Like they didn't want it to look like it was made in the lobby of whatever hotel, um, you know, they happen to be staying in, but that it's really from Sheffield. And I think be, living at the time in Berlin, we felt that there was a lot of transience uh, to our work and to work coming and going. And so we also wanted a sense of place to imbue our work. And I think in addition to that as well, um, you know, a lot of the structures of dance classically in terms of um, uh, even modern dance and the way it's institutionalized and taught and how choreography functions, it's very hierarchical. And I think we were very interested in a much more collaborative approach still recognizing that if we're going to lead an institution, there's some sense of hierarchy there. But I think that the idea for us was a kind of a leadership that didn't uh, necessarily make everything we were doing about us, but allowed us to um, kind of guide a larger collaborative community around work. Yeah. And if I may add to that, maybe you're familiar to Argentine tango and and for me, they were a big inspiration into the embodiment, like I am a, a tango dancer and a tango teacher also. And the relationship between following and leading is really interesting in tango. And the fact of practicing uh, has helped me to clarify what that means to lead, what that means to follow. And leadership for me being a big act of listening. You cannot lead when you don't listen. So there, there is this idea too that, that there is this... Um, um, this attitude toward leading that comes with all kinds of practice of listening. Are there, you? because you mentioned tools, uh, the tools that you learned as dancers and choreographer Muriel yeah. that you wanted to use towards this organization. So you just mentioned now the act of listening. Any other tools that you can think of that are particularly relevant to leading an institution that you learned as dancers and choreographers? I mean, I think one thing that is proper to um, the creation of 
contemporary dance, the creation of contemporary theater in, in the ways that we have practiced it is that, you know, what you are doing is you are constantly in a process where you are searching uh, through the unknown or the half known, right? Where you are sort of groping around a dark room, kind of revealing things as you are in process. And so I think that, um, you know, that approach to creative process has also become our uh, approach as well towards leadership, not not necessarily turning out the lights and just groping around, not knowing what we're doing, but <laughs> being comfortable with a sense of um, being, you know, being uh, somewhere between what we know how to do and what we kind of feel or we intuit or we uh, are following where we are following our interests. Well, being a dancer and a choreographer uh, propose, promotes a dancer and choreographer to be in another kind of knowing that is maybe not the intellectual knowing that we have an idea about, like knowing something is to be able to enunciate it and clearly talk about it. Where in a dancer's body, knowing is much more complex and layered. And so like utilizing this intuition, maybe this other kind of knowing into what we are doing, paired with the intellectual understanding of a place and et cetera. Yeah. And so I think when one approaches leading even an institution, even if it's a small nonprofit, from the point of view of that kind of intuitive place of kind of uh, listening in a different way, perhaps being comfortable with the half knowing, um, you know, I think what ends up happening are, is programs become much more dynamic and much more collaborative than the idea that one would sort of uh, have a whole design and prescription for the entire program and then would go forth and implement it in a kind of a classic uh, leadership style. And, and actually, that was really interesting when we started because we, we were looking for the model that we wanted to develop. And, and then we, of course, everybody from the outside was like, well, you need to have like a clear business plan and you need to, you know, have all the... And we were working towards that. And there was something that was clarifying in one ways and yet something was missing and we couldn't put a, a finger on it for a while and then we realized that our model was emergent and that we couldn't just apply a model to it we were actually in the verge of creating something new and so we couldn't just rely on like existing models Tommy, you recently wrote this really galvanizing piece in indie week which is kind of your response to covid19 and how you propose artistic institutions might use it as a turning point in the way they operate. In, yeah. in this think piece, you mentioned that um, you put forth a cultural ethos as a possible model. And I'm wondering if you can summarize what that ethos is. And also, since you wrote that piece, what, several weeks ago when we were just entering lockdown, I'm wondering if you've had more clarification since. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, definitely, because we're all in a very fluid, evolving situation. Um, you know, I think the first thing for me to express about this piece was, is, is that, um, it, you know, how do you, how do you, um, propose a critique of a, of a system in which, you know, people are legitimately, um, struggling and, and, and really needing help. And we are in a pretty privileged situation to be stable. And so, you know, part of it is, you know, we look at ourselves right now at Culture Mill and we realize that we have a paycheck each month, right? We're able to eat, we're able to function, we're able, even though we lose revenue, to continue our programs in some sense. Um, and so a question for me kind of became like, 
Why, why is that? What are those practices that we have managed to find in place that has allowed us to remain sustainable right now? And I think the, the question or the, the answer to that is uh, really myriad in the sense that, you know, part of it is about um, uh, visioning large projects uh, in which we can sort of go after large amounts of money as a nonprofit and pay ourselves, prioritize paying ourselves a salary um, and then also uh, sort of, um, you know, leverage and develop a whole system of community support through Patreon, through sustainer models based around the fact that, you know, what we do isn't just about our work. It is not just a company model where we want to create our work and we want to sustain that. Part of what we do is we look at not only the creation of our work and our artistic orientation guiding things, but how that can also be uh, beneficial to the community through linking programs with non-art sectors. So all of this is a whole like, you know, if it were a portfolio, it's like diversifying our portfolio, diversifying our revenue streams, but also going after, you know, like major funding. And so that is because Culture Mill has programs that are tangential to dance, really cultural, right? Absolutely. And so it's it's really like linked for us to embodied arts, immersive arts, performance-based arts, but totally tangential to dance, even though we're dancers. And so I, I think, you know, if there's one thing I kind of want to sort of like say that I'm seeing in relationship to this article and this sort of thought is that you know, there is a moment of opportunity in this for the arts, uh, you know, in a whole systemic way to really not only look at the arts. I mean, it's the whole gig economy. It's our whole American yeah. approach to, to, to this gig economy, which is obviously problematic in terms of sustaining a workforce. You know, we need to do a few things. Institutions need to understand how they can better um better give money directly to artists and place more trust in artists, uh, being able to capitalize their own communities and networks effectively. As at the same time, artists need to really work on their skill sets and their habits and their practices of sustainability and not reproducing the same culture of exploitation within their own networks by hiring each other and budgeting irresponsibly without paying one another. So this whole systemic you know, awareness needs to needs to be raised about like, you know, there's much better ways to do this. And it needs a comprehensive approach from large institutions. Um, to individual that, artists. You know, to individual right. artists and their actions. And so I, I, now that the final part of your question, now that this is sort of evolving, I mean, there's all sorts of things emerging, uh, sort of different ways that artists are making up income and different things to sort of uh, initiatives to kind of help artists. And what I really hope, what I really hope is just that um, it can, the thinking can go beyond like, how do we remedy this until it goes back to normal? It's more like, how do we keep people going until we go forward into a more sustainable and equitable system? You know, so that's, that's my hope is that we can all think that way in a multi-leveled approach. You mentioned I like I love the phrase practices of sustainability. What what does that mean for you? Well, um, it starts really at a personal level of how we lead our lives, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, and sustainability, like in, in matter of finances, of course, but not only because most of the artists are are like struggling um, financially, but also. 
at an energy level, they are like, we are, we are always exhausted. We are always overworked. We are always this and that. So like claiming. And your, uh, your, your parents as well, right? For in fact, you've, you've had to homeschool your child recently. Right? <laughs> yes. so that's another level of exhaustion. That's, that's sure an, is. It is, it is indeed. <laughs> uh, and so like, Practice of sustainability would mean like looking at all of that. How do we like, and of course it goes with the systemic change. We cannot do one without the other, but we need to start somewhere. So maybe the individual change that Tommy is speaking about is a place to start. Like how do we budget not only our like our projects, but our life? How do we budget our time? How do we not over-involve ourselves with this like scarcity kind of mindset where it's like, I need to get as many things as possible or I'm not going to survive. But this actually affects the quality of the work. It affects the, like also the credibility of the work mm. and for, for, for the general audience and for, for patrons, for, for institutions. Yeah. So sustainability, how do we claim also what we need as artists and claim that yeah. we know what we need? And we need to understand labor, our own labor and the labor of others as a finite resource because we treat it as an infinite resource where we're like, you know what? We don't have enough money, but we can just keep throwing labor at it and, uh, you know, not worry about the consequences of that. And that practice is one that needs to stop in order to foster sustainability is like, all right, we need to consider the amount of labor that's required for the scale of our project and, 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 you know, uh, make sure that labor is compensated adequately. And that's a step towards. Yeah. And there is a kind of discipline to that because um, I think it's also, it's where, where we met and where we came from, where I came from and where we met, meaning Germany and, and, and France, Europe, like inform that way of thinking because yeah. we were like from the beginning on when we move here and I heard all the stories about like our artists were living. I was like, this is not what we're going to do or we're not going to do that. So mm-hmm. like artists need to be paid. That's the first thing. And, and it's not only like a sacrifice kind of model because some artists like pay maybe their collaborator, but then they don't pay themselves. And then they, they're like, they decay pretty soon and they get bitter and they don't do any work anymore. Yeah. So it's like we pay ourselves and we pay others. Like you take care of yourself, you take care of others. That's how you, you should do it. And that it's not, it's not a compromise thing. And I, and you I don't compromise yeah. that. And that means that we need to understand how to do it because it's not in the system and a lot of people do it without being paid. But really, it's a, it's a kind of a discipline and, and, to have. And the final thing I want to say about that, too, is that, you know, one thing that we can do as well, especially as artists, is we can recognize that the dynamics within our art sector, um, we need to have, I think, a broader sort of political consciousness of the fact that those dynamics need to be in solidarity with the dynamics of the larger economy and issues of labor and of poverty and of inequality yeah. and of uh, power that exist broadly. And so I think we, if we can start to see ourselves and our own issues in solidarity with, um, you know, dynamics involving the distribution of wealth and, and of poverty in other sectors of the economy, like that is also a step towards thinking more broadly about sustainable solutions to our, to our difficulties. Later, I asked them if they considered creating deep relationships, whether with their collaborators, their community, or their funders, to be part of their business and artistic practice. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's really, 
you know, when we started to understand relationships as a resource, not, not in a cynical way, like something to be mined, but more like recognizing the fact that if we invest in relationships, that's actually the best thing that we can possibly do towards really sustaining the work and, and also the, the possibilities for not only funding, but just like the emergent doors that open and pathways Partners, that yeah, reveal partnerships, themselves. Partnerships, collaboration, uh, funding, all of that is with, yeah. is with together. So also yeah. like that's the thing, to understand the weaving, to be with the weaving. And I think like also if we talk about relationship, we talk of the body, we didn't mention that, but that's also one of the big starting points, right? We are dancers and choreographers and we start and we continue and we are with the body all the time. So when we build relationships, there is, even when we don't see the person, and we're like there is this sense of the body, yeah. of the history of someone that we talk to. They come with their body, with their body mind, with their history. And we try to find the way, that space in between us of relating. Yeah. So this is a sense that you've developed. It's a sense that I, as a non-dancer, wouldn't automatically have. The sense of the, what did you call it? The, the body sense? Yeah, it's a, the, the, uh, an embody is an embody uh, presence to the moment of making relationship. I see. I would say. I mean, it's, I, I don't know the figure, but some, some crazy percentage of our communication is physical communication. Um, and mm. it actually takes place non-verbally, which proposes a whole difficult uh, you know, something that's really difficult in these times when we're not physically together with Is there anything about your leadership that uh, you'd like to share? Anything that I might not have thought to ask? Um, uh, this is really specific to us, but um, it comes back again and again to, as, as Muriel said, to the body. And um, you know, we have meetings sometimes where we dance while we meet more and more. And we have, um, we, we don't. Is it just the two of you in the meetings or are there other people? Uh, sometimes, like, there, there are sometimes other people yeah. with, with us, depending on the, the yeah. other person. We, we try we, to adapt and yeah. not to scare people too much. Right. Not terribly so, formal meetings with large, large institutions, for example. But, um, <laughs> but we do sometimes invite others to, to move as well. Um, and I think part of it is like, you know, we also have, instead of brainstorming sessions, what Michael is called body storming sessions, where a lot of our visioning and designing programs and budgeting and all of these things happen non-verbally through a writing and movement process. Um, we start with that at least. We start with that. And it, I think that the quality of thinking and of collaborating is so much better when we are in our bodies through these sort of structures of ways to be in our bodies. And I think that that is at the root of our leadership style that we've developed is like finding these ways that our thinking process, our visioning process, our collaborating process, it all comes down to being in our bodies and being in our bodies and letting that bodily experience lead. I love their idea of the body storming sessions, they called it. I love that they invite their community into their way of thinking and their way of thinking starts naturally with the body. So the, the idea that artists can invite uh, constituents and stakeholders to experience the world as they do seems kind of phenomenal to me. Yeah, it's really interesting. In my work as a coach, we have a whole field of study called somatic coaching 
which is learning through the body, paying attention to the body. I know that's also a therapeutic process that that uh, counselors and therapists will use. Um, but they really stressed to me what I heard was stressing um, listening both as a leader, which is they describe as one type of listening, and then also listening through the body, which is a different type of understanding and knowing, and clearly creates a powerful way for them to connect. Uh, with their community. What else stood out for you about this, about the way they lead? Well, talking about community, they reinforce something we've heard from a lot of our interviews, Pierre Carlo, that um, an artist can and should be a community leader. It's fascinating. You know, we talk about it in the the intro to this piece that these folks have performed and worked all over the world, literally, and they chose to settle in sleepy Saxapahaw, North Carolina, and not just settle there as a place to live because it's beautiful and quiet, but they've, they're digging roots and they're, they're becoming an active part of the community. And I think one of the most powerful moves we're seeing for artist leaders is how they engage their local community, whether it's a small town or a big city, and use their art to create social impact and social change. And it's very profound and a very common theme we're seeing with our artist leaders. The other thing that I think really stood out for me, mostly because it's something that came up with our Jonah Bocaire interview and our Paola Pristini, our most recent ones, is the notion of these artist leaders refusing to buy into a culture of scarcity, that they're finding ways to value their art making and the making of all art, of all people who work with them, inherently valuable and finding new ways to support it. Yeah, the, you know, in leadership, we talk about the scarcity model um, as a uh, influence tool. Well, you can see this in something as simple as travel websites. You know, uh, we're not doing a lot of traveling right now, but you know that experience where you go on and you're looking for a, like a seat for the airplane, and it says only two seats left at this price. You mm-hmm. know, that's typically just shenanigans, and they're just trying to um, pressure the buyer into getting the seat sooner because you feel like, oh, if I don't get it now. There's scarcity, it's limited supply. Right. So it's a very common move. And I love that, you know, they're not willing to buy into that scarcity model, which can be so easily over consuming for an artist. Anyone who works in the arts typically, that feeling that there's not enough work or there's not enough money to be made, or, you know, the list can go on and on during a COVID crisis that will never work again. And so to stay constantly in the mindset of abundance. Um, is a powerful move that anyone can make and certainly an artist leader can make to to continue to be generative and create an impact around them. You know, they talked a lot about systems. One yeah. of the quotes that I loved was, how do we keep people going until we go forward into a more sustainable and equitable system? And that's really that growth mindset and that abundance mindset and saying there's more we can constantly do. Our work is never done as we continue to impact systems. Yeah, we're we're very lucky to have them in our area. Yes. And uh, I can't wait to see what they do over the next few years. If you'd like to learn more about Muriel, Tommy, or Culture Mill, please go to uncsa.edu slash leader. And as we always say, if you've enjoyed this episode and aren't already subscribed, go ahead and subscribe. We've got a great lineup of interviews coming up. You don't want to miss any. And we'd love to also hear any ideas you have about which artist leaders in your community you'd like us to profile. We'd happily put them into future episodes. So please visit us on our Facebook page at Keenan Institute for the Arts and leave us your comments and suggestions there. Our theme music is by The Dimes. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.